Welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com with your host, Dr. Todd Curtis. This is show number 51. The Roots of Fear of Flying with Captain Tom Bunn and Lisa Hopner. This show was first broadcast on June 7th, 2008. This show features two pioneers in the treatment of fear of flying, Captain Tom Bunn and Lisa Hopner of the SOAR Fear of Flying Organization. These two experts, who are both trained therapists, reveal a number of surprising facts about fear of flying, including the roots of fear of flying and the fact that the fear is often only indirectly related to flying. I'm Todd Curtis of uh, airsafe.com, the conversation at airsafe.com, your host for this podcast. And my guests today are Captain Tom Bunn of Soar Fear of Flying and Lisa Hopner, also of Soar Fear of Flying, which is an organization dedicated to treating uh, fear of flying. So before we get into the meat of the matter, I'd like to have a couple of minutes talking about why you folks got involved in this uh, aspect of human behavior. Well, Todd, how it got started, uh, from my point of view, is in 1975, there were three groups of people who put together fear of flying courses uh, at U.S. Air, uh, Captain Petey and uh, a social worker named uh, Stauffer put together a course. There was a group of flight attendants called the 99s who put together a course, and Captain Cummings uh, at uh, uh, Pan Am, we called him Slim, Slim Cummings. Um, and this all happened in 1975. And the way it started with Slim, I think, is kind of interesting. He had uh, dabbled, in addition to being an airline pilot, he dabbled in, in smoke enders and learning hypnosis and things like that. He had a couple of friends who were afraid of flying, and he tried hypnosis on them and found it didn't do any good. So he took them out to the airport, told them how planes work, put them on planes, got them used to planes, took a flight with them, taught them some relaxation exercises, and they were able to fly. So Slim went to the chief pilot down in Miami and said, you know, I think we should do a course on fear of flying. The chief pilot said, yeah, sounds like a good idea to me, Slim, but I think, you know, if we do that, we should have a psychologist do it. And Slim said, but I am a psychologist, because in those days you could pay five bucks and get a license to do psychology in Florida. So that's how I got started at Pan Am. Um, in 1980, he asked me to work with him on the course, and I told him I didn't think I'd be interested, but he said, come take a look. And I was fascinated how really alive and imaginative people are who have trouble with flying. And so I got hooked on doing it. Then in 1982, I set up SOAR, because the, the course at Pan Am and the other courses at the airlines were only able to help people with mild problems. And... Uh, it was disturbing to find people who had bigger problems with flying who weren't being helped at all. And I felt that by adding a cognitive behavioral therapy approach to it, we might be able to do more. And that was the case. Starting in 82, we were able to do more. But it took another 10 years to develop something that would work in every case for dealing with flying. So that's how I got started. And Lisa, you came about this uh, through a somewhat different route than... Uh I did. Yes, I did. Um, I have not always been in the career that I'm in now. Um, I used to work in the finance field of finance and investment banking, um, actually for Citicorp, and had business travel on my own. Um, never had a problem with flying and um, suddenly started having a problem with flying. And I actually met Tom, um, Captain Bunn, through... Uh, looking for my own help for fear of flying and that's how you know this sort of all started um for me so i kind of see it on the other end um did the program with him uh, in 1990 and it changed a lot of you know not just the flying not just making flying more comfortable for me but it, it's really not about flying you know we always say fear of flying is not about flying it's about a lot of other things and i think as a part of that um i went and sort of changed my career, started working with him, um, and uh, from there, you know, continued my education, um, you know, to uh, get my master's degree in counseling and then license as a therapist and on and on and on, and here we are, and, you know, Tom and I joined up in 1990, he said, well, you know, if you, uh, I said, could I help you out with this program, it's amazing, I've told so many people about it, he said, well, you can, you know, we've tried it before, but let's, you know, let's see, you can maybe, you know, work and try to sell some courses for me on commission. So we started doing that, and from there it really took off, um, no pun intended. <laughs> um, <laughs> eventually I did, uh, you know, leave that, that 
field and, and you know, did my go-back-to-school sort of thing and work, uh, run the business with Tom. Um, since, you know, a lot of my strengths are in the business field, but the, the having the personal experience with SOAR and understanding the psychology of it and now professionally and having the training in it, um, I think it's a great combination. I, I uh, you know, it's changed a lot. For many people, I see what they go through and know what it feels like to, you know, be, be, uh, you know, sort of be be free of a of a lot of these these vulnerabilities. So, it's a, a great program, you know, as I see it from both ends. And yeah. let me uh, backtrack just a little bit, uh, Tom. Your your career was as a professional airline pilot, and yes. you also went back to school and did uh, psychology related things. Yes. Yes. What happened was that. Uh, we just were not able to break the code on uh, on what it took to help everybody. Uh, I, I, back starting in '82, uh, began hiring psychologists, the best people I could find, to add more dimension to the program, and it wasn't working. So finally, I went to school, got a master's degree, got licensed as a therapist, and then went to an institute, went to another institute, and finally a third institute. And little pieces picked up here and there. Finally, things began to click. And one of the, one of the really helpful things was that the functional MRI that lets um, cognitive uh, researchers, um, neuroscientists, see how the mind works. As we began to see how the mind works, some things began to click for us to put together what we now call the strengthening exercise, which does something that up until then had been thought to be impossible. Prior to the strengthening exercise, the focus on treatment of therapy was try not to make it worse. Um, when you have a response to the thought, what if the wings fall off? You need to cognitively tell yourself, no, that can't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but that still leaves you with that initial shot of stress hormones. What we were able to do is to stop the initial hit of stress hormones, and that's what was considered impossible until we developed that exercise. So it seems as though the two of you have uh, developed a particular branch of uh, therapy and psychology, uh, well, use the theories of psychology and develop a very particular brand of therapy that no one else has? Yeah, and... Uh, we're now in the process of setting up a, uh, a course which we'll do in person at uh, a, a medical school in New Jersey. And it's going to be uh, researched, very carefully researched. And we're going to do a version of the course without the strengthening exercise mm -hmm. and with the strengthening exercise to see what difference that particular exercise makes. And then, of course, we believe it's going to make a big difference. We'll give the people who didn't get it initially the strengthening exercise later. Forgive me for uh, my uh, lack of knowledge in the psychological world, but strengthening exercises, I have this vision of Arnold Schwarzenegger. So specifically, again, what does the strengthening exercise mean in the psychological context? Well, it, it's about strengthening a person emotionally. We get our ability to have what we could call emotional strength, the ability to be resilient, the ability to calm oneself when uncertain. We develop this ability very young. It's built into us. It's kind of like a computer program that is downloaded into us by how our parents relate to us and how they calm us. In other words, you take what your parent does to calm you and memorize it and learn to do it for yourself when your parent's not around. So we build in this ability. And um, to the degree it's built in, let's say on a scale of 0 to 10, person who gets a 10. Well, they're not going to have any trouble with anxiety through their whole life. They'll be able to deal with uncertainty. But if a person gets a 5, certain things are going to be too challenging. And what typically we do, like Linus with his security blanket, when uncertain, we use security blankets to strengthen ourselves emotionally. Typically three of them. Control. Control of the situation so their uncertainty is less or maybe completely not there at all. Or the second security blanket, reassurance. Someone who tells you, don't worry, it's really going to work out all right. And third, knowing that you can get out of the situation if it really doesn't work out okay. And on the ground, we use these. The problem with flying is all three are taken away from you, and you're left with your basic ability, whatever your basic ability is to have emotional strength. That's what you're left with. You don't have these security blankets. 
You don't control the plane. You don't have a pilot sitting next to you to reassure you, and you know you can't get out. So you're left with your basic ability, which may not be enough. Now, my observation along those lines has been the following. I'm a pilot, although only a private pilot and by no means a professional. But in my limited flying experience, one thing I noticed very quickly is, no matter how bad of a pilot I was, I always felt much better when I was flying the plane because... As bad as things were, at least I knew exactly what was going on, and I was uh, the master of my domain. But back in the back of the plane as a passenger, what do I know? Nothing. Right. And I think, you know, with we always hear this from, from our clients and, you know, knowing how it felt for me, um, ha- liking to be in control is, is one of the, I'll call them qualities of a fearful flyer. Um, and that is something that does get you far in life in certain situations and also in in career-wise. You know, uh, business likes people who get things done and like to be in control. Um, A lot of the fearful flies we work with are successful and also very creative people, um, which is another, you know, which is is another quality that fearful flyers have. Um, You know, they can hear something or see something or look at an empty room and and have visually decorated or visually create these these scenarios or um, movies that, um, you know, aren't there, and their body will react to... Um, to it as though it's really happening. So, you know, the creativity and the control, the two things, you know, as, as Tom was saying, on the plane um, really could be a problem. So uh, let me back up to a point you made earlier, Lisa, that uh, yourself, you're a frequent flyer, a business flyer, had no problems with flying, and suddenly you had issues. So uh, in yeah. short, uh, what does cause fear of flying, if not in yourself, uh, in your situation, but in general? What typically causes well, fear of flying? You know, I in my situation, and then I'll let um, Tom talk about it a little bit as well. Um, it, it, it's when it does come about, it's the most confusing thing because most fearful flyers are people who have flown comfortably, never had a problem with a flight, um, didn't have any kind of accident or or anything at all. In fact, some uh, a lot of fearful flyers love love flying or have loved flying. Suddenly, it seems to come out of nowhere, and um, it's pretty confusing. Um, you know, in looking back, you know, for me it was a lot of uh, changes, uh, you know, going on for me that um, just kind of come about. Usually around, uh, we say the onset is usually late 20s or early 30s, and that's about the time it was for me. Um, maybe changing career, unhappiness with what I was doing. So it's really, it really doesn't come out of the blue. Again, no pun intended, but um, <laughs> it really is, is uh, you know, something I'll let Tom talk a little bit about. Um, you know, about that, what really uh, causes it. Yeah, Lisa's got a good point there because even in among professionals, uh, what causes fear of flying is not well un- understood. It is basically that we don't have as much built-in emotional strength as some people get, and we make up for it by the security blankets, which then in flying get taken away. But let's say for a while a person was able to fly. I think it has to do not with some major trauma like a really terrible flight in most cases, but it's one thing after another, after another, after another. What if the wings fall off? What Mm -hmm. if the pilot is drunk? What if there's a terrorist? Well, the first time a person flies, they only have one thought. Well, this plane might crash. And that one thought releases one shot of stress hormones which is enough on a scale of 0 to 10 to take you to about a 2. It puts us into what we call the fight-or-flight mode, which is to be alert to see if we need to take some action to take care of ourselves. It's not not high anxiety. It's just the right amount of anxiety to focus you on this moment to check it out and see if there's something. It's like your smoke alarm going off. You, You want to check and see if there's really something wrong or if it's just a malfunction. So 0 to 2 out of 10, that's all one shot of stress hormones based on one thought calls. But after you read the news and you watch on television, you find out, oh, well, like Air Alaska had a crash, or uh, in 2001 there was a crash in Queens. When you add these up over the years, and then you start thinking, I'm going to take a flight, you think about incident number one, that gives you a shot of stress hormones. You think about incident two, gives you another shot right on top of the first one. And then thought three and thought four. So you go from zero to two, two to four, four to six, six to eight. And just thinking about a flight can cause very high anxiety, sometimes for some people even panic.
Uh, just it. now when you said that, and over the last minute or so, I'm getting uh, pangs of guilt here because, uh, as you know, airsafe.com sort of concentrates in one very convenient location. Hundreds of events like that. And I've, I've always been afraid in the back of my head that as much good as I'm trying to do, that I might actually scare the pants off of some people who come there looking for insight and suddenly say, oh my gosh, 737's had 55 fatal events. Well, you've got a point, but this is the kind of thing that we ran into when we set up the course because we say, okay, let's look at some of the accidents that have taken place. And then we point out something that, Todd, you know about, that when there's an accident, we figure out the cause and we come up with a fix. So that's the solution because it brings control back in. So let's say, uh, for example, let's go back to TW800. Mm -hmm. uh, what caused that was an explosion in just residual fuel in the center tank. So there's lots of ways to fix it. Have a dry tank, have more than residual fuel, or make sure there's no spark. So we took all those into consideration when dealing with that accident. So it wasn't like, well, first of all, if we had done nothing, that was such a freak accident, it probably would have never happened again. But in aviation, we don't rest on that idea. We want to fix. We want control. If it's anybody who's control freaks, it's pilots. We don't want to fly an airplane where we don't have real control. So when there's an accident, something is done. And so, yes, when you look at the fact that on your site you have information about these accidents, uh, what we do in our program is we address the accidents and what was done. The way I look at it now is we've been flying airplanes for a little over 100 years. And in that 100 years, probably everything that can happen has happened and been fixed. So nowadays, to have an accident, it's got to be something extremely rare, something that didn't happen in 100 years. And, yeah, and uh, unfortunately, think, they still okay. keep happening. But uh, again, this is a plug for the, uh, the safety side of the industry. If we had the kind of accident rate that was, that was common in the 70s in the United States and Europe... If that were happening today, uh, it would be politically and socially unacceptable. You would have several big-time accidents a year, and the fact of the matter is it's not happening, not in the U.S., not in Western Europe, not in most of the world. But in spite of that, uh, the concern, the fear, the stress still is out there that, gee, what if my airplane crashes? Take a look at this, Todd. It, it's like if you took a person who's rational about flying out to the airport and said, Okay, look at this airplane on the left. It crashes once every million flights. And this one here, this one crashes every five million flights. And this one over here, it crashes once every 20 million flights. Which one do you want to fly? The person who's looking at it from a non-emotional state says, well, I know which one I want to be on, the one that crashes only once every 20 million flights. That's so rare, it's insignificant. But if you take a person who's anxious out and do the same thing, they'll say, it doesn't matter which one I fly, if I get on, it's going to crash. Yeah. Because they look at the one. It doesn't matter if it's one in a million, one in 20 million. They see the one. That's the thing right. we have to work on. Yeah, the, the facts don't help. You know, people very often initially when they want to look for help with fear of flying, they'll try to get every single piece of information and fact and statistic that they can. And, you know, that's, a, that's an okay thing. That's a good thing to do. Um, but then they may come to us and say, I know how everything works. I, you know, have a degree in this and that, and my husband's an engineer and so on, but I still can't, um, I still can't get rid of this fear. Um, because facts don't really help the emotional side of, of fear of flying. That's, that's where the problem really lies. I mean, you can get the facts and the intelligence is there, but the emotional part is what, what makes people say, yeah, it's going to be my plane that, that, that crashes. Would it be an oversimplification to say that you have two groups of people out there, one that's essentially optimistic when it comes to things flying and one that's pessimistic and that, that optimism or pessimism is sort of like you were saying earlier, uh, Tom, the groundwork was laid when they were very young? Yes, and I think the pessimism translates not into just an intellectual understanding, but into an emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking about, I think, a pretty fascinating experiment. It's called visual cliff. What you do mm -hmm. is you take a very large glass table, and you cover half of it so it can't be seen through. Then you take a little kid who is able to crawl, uh, and you put them on top of the table, and they will crawl along on top of the table where they can't see through it very happily. Then you put a toy at the far end of the table. Well, to get to that toy, they have to go over the area of glass where they can see through it 
and when they come to that edge, that visual cliff, they stop. In the research, as far as I can recall, not one child would go out over the visual cliff. And then they added something to the experiment. They put the mother at the far end of the table. And when the child approached the visual cliff, when the mother smiled, 80% of the kids would go right out there and get mm -hmm. the toy. Mm -hmm. I think, in a way, what we're doing with the strengthening exercise is bringing in that dimension, the fact that we can, our, our uncertainties can be um, taken care of by our connection with other people who can really reassure us at a gut level. And what we're doing in the strengthening exercise is tapping into a moment when a person felt very connected with another. Apparently, there's even a hormone that's produced in those moments, a hormone called oxytocin, which tends to shut down anxiety. So what we're trying to do is to find a moment that produces that kind of feeling and then tie each moment of uncertainty about flying to a moment in one's memory so that when you're dealing with uncertainty, it triggers the good hormones, the ones that shut down the anxiety. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that some of the people that you treat have in their other lives or in their professional lives or done things, paratrooper, rock climber, fighter pilot, you know, master of the universe, and they reduce themselves to a bowl of quivering jello inside of an airplane. Uh, does that kind of person show up on occasion? Absolutely. Yes. I remember a, a guy who was a motorcycle racer. He said, I feel totally in control when I'm racing my motorcycle, but uh, not on an airplane. In fact, that also brings to mind a New York City uh, undercover cop who even became uh, the subject of a, of a television show. And he said, I feel perfectly in control on the street with my, when I've got my gun, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I'm dealing with criminals. I wouldn't feel like he's, he's being reasonable about that. But he felt in control there, but not on a plane. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so, yeah it happens often. Is there a level of embarrassment that some people have to overcome before they admit to themselves or even to you that they have a problem? I think I think so. I mean, I hear um, initially before we had the website, most of the phone calls that came in to the 800 number um, were were women, and I just thought, well, maybe it's more you know women are more prone to fear of flying, and you know, and then I'm wondering, well, maybe it's that women tend to uh, maybe ask for help more in in situations where they need emotional help. You know, I wasn't really sure. Um, but I see now with the website, it, it's, it pretty much leans toward 50-50, I think. I mean, what do you think, Tom? Yeah, I'm surprised. I think that, that's, that guys do not want to talk about this. They want right. to tough it out one way or another. Right. And I think the anonymity of the site is, very, is a big help um, and often feel that, you know, I, well, I grew up and it was, I'm supposed to, you know, just stick it out and get through it and people don't understand it. So there is a sense of shame, I think, um, before people actually um, make a call or order a course or maybe they order it without even any, any of us never even speaking with them. And, that's, and I think that's a good thing for people who don't who don't feel comfortable putting it out there. And let, let me just uh, digress for a moment and say that the, uh, I, by the way, I keep referring to it as a SOAR program. It's, you, you refer to it as SOAR program, rather, than the SOAR program? Just so people don't think it's SORE. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, your program offers not only direct treatment, but people can buy, buy DVDs, CDs, uh, audio programs, all sorts of ways of getting treatment delivered to them, either personally one-on-one -on -one, or indirectly through uh, the multimedia you offer. Yeah, it, we, the, the strengthening exercise is a, is a bit complex, so it, it, and a person needs to practice it six to eight sessions before flying to get maximum results because we want it to work totally automatically. It, it, to give an example, if you're walking in the woods and you're about to step on a snake, you'll get a shot of stress hormones before you can see the snake. That's how quick the... Uh, anxiety system works based on operation of a little mini brain called the amygdala. It triggers the release of the of the stress hormones and makes you freeze. I don't know the amygdala amygdala from a hole in the ground, but I do know what it feels like when I'm running down the road and suddenly I'm in midair and I see a rattlesnake in my field of view. Yeah, and and the thing is that if if you if you go back and kind of analyze that, your hair stands on end before you actually see the snake, and then you see the snake. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is to make this exercise work 
at an unconscious level so fast that it keeps up with the speed that the amygdala might send out the, the hormones we don't want it to send out. So it's got to work automatically. That's why a person needs to practice this six to eight sessions to install it. And it is a bit complex, so we have it on video. I can um, only imagine what would go through people's minds or how they would react if they're in the airplane and suddenly they had a, a shot of adrenaline like they would have if they saw a rattlesnake, except they're tied into a seat at 35,000 feet, and they really can't run or make a whole lot of noise without attracting attention. And there's your panic attack. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, obviously, uh, given that this is a psychological sort of issue, uh, do you often see people who develop multiple problems along the way? For example, they're self-medicating with, with uh, pills and alcohol, and only then do they come get treatment for their fear of flying, and suddenly you have multiple issues to deal with. Yeah, I mean that's um, that's that is that can be a problem. What I have found, and and that is a, one of my specialties and certification is in addiction um, therapy. Um, I have found that it, you know, we we tell people that this could be a problem, but. For some reason, I think there's a lot about that wanting to be in control. Most fearful flyers that I speak with anyway don't even like to take medication. You know, they'll say, well, oh, you know, I was given a Xanax just for this flight, but I never take it for anything else. But then again, you know, they, n not everybody may be telling us what's going on, but there is a serious, um, a very serious um, potential of addiction with the anti-anxiety medications. Um, they're very addictive. And, um, you know, people really have to be careful with them, especially if there's, that, there's a predisposition within their family background and, and family system and so on. Um, the other thing is, yeah, mixing those with alcohol. Sometimes people will say, oh, I'll just have a drink and get on a plane, or I'll have a, you know, a couple of drinks and pop a Xanax. That's very dangerous. So uh, given, well, current day flying versus 30 years ago, current day flying, which prior to the big spike in oil prices, uh, prices were relatively low. vast majority of adults in the United States have flown at least once. And you have a much wider range of people flying than you did 20 or 30 years ago. Has the character of fear of flying changed because you have a different demographic, or is it pretty much the same across the social and economic uh, range of people who fly? You know, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure about it, but I, I my impression is that some of our clients now are less sophisticated than our clients were some years ago. I don't know if, Lisa, do you have that? Yeah, I think there's something there. Um, maybe it's that, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really sure, um, maybe it's that more people are flying now. There's more of a, you know, a big chunk of, of people who can fly. I mean, flying has become so common when earlier it used to be more of a special thing. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, more affordable flying, yeah, despite despite the fa fares now, I think more people are flying in general, and I think just by default you're going to get a bigger piece of the population. It could be that, but yeah, I do find um, I do do find that, um, but generally, I think it doesn't matter um, nothing matters in terms of of demographics or 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 any other. Any other uh, factor, I think it's people all have say similar things and have similar feelings, you know, no matter how they express it. It just seems to be the same basic fear in, in everybody, no matter where they come from. Let me turn the spotlight off of the customer and onto the provider of services, the airlines themselves. Now, over the years, there have been various airline programs or airline-sponsored programs or airline-affiliated programs with fear of flying. But do you think the industry has been... How should, how should I say, consistent with addressing the problem, or are they happy enough with the customers they have that they're not really working hard to uh, expand the customer base by getting rid of some of this fear of flying? Well, uh, back when I worked at Pan Am, um, I remember talking to the uh, vice president in charge of public relations. He was the person we interfaced with. And he said, we don't have any, uh, any uh, naive belief that <clears throat> the bottom line at Pan Am is going to be improved by... Uh, the number of people we can get through the fear flying program. What we do it for is to show that we care about our passengers and the publicity they got from the fear of flying programs was why they did it. I don't think that that we're making much of a dent in the bottom line of any airline, but we certainly are making a, a big change for people who we can open up the whole world to. Yeah. So it makes a difference there, not so much for the airlines. I think what the airlines have tried to do to help 
deal with uh, flight anxiety is to design the cabins with uh, uh, some shapes of, uh, of overhead compartments and seats and so on with more rounded, more uh, shapes that are more like the human body as a way of trying to connect people with uh, warm and fuzzy feelings when flying. So is that uh, sort of a, a fortunate uh, side benefit, or do you think that was a deliberate uh, design criteria for the interior designers out there? No, they actually went, uh, went about to, to find a, a designer who had studied what causes people to be calmed by, uh, by shapes, by art, by colors, and they intentionally brought that into the design of the cabin. The design of the cabin, that's one thing that's in the, in the hands of the airlines. But the design of your personal media experience while on board the airplane, unlike 10 years ago, it's pretty easy for anyone who wants to have their own private uh, entertainment experience, iPods or other kind of, kinds of devices. The fact that people can customize their experiences, is this making it less of a stressful event for them or more of a stressful event? What I hear is that uh, being able to watch the airplane on the map, the electronic map, is helpful. Um, I think when people are in the last five or ten minutes of a flight, they don't have anxiety. Even though you and I know that accidents sometimes happen in landing, they're okay because they figure the flight's almost over and they can anticipate getting off the plane, and they only have one thing to worry about, not five or ten. But at the beginning of the flight... They've got the entire flight ahead of them. They start thinking, what if I panic? What if I'm panicked for an hour or two or three? If they can split the flight up and think about this one moment right now rather than try to think about the entire flight and everything that could go wrong, they're helped. So the fact that they can look on that map and say, this is where the airplane is now, and we're moving at a certain speed, it helps them feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel, just as they do when they're just about to land. It does help. It really makes something concrete for them. And, and you know, I know speaking for myself, um, I just generally tend to be a person that likes maps, um, you know, whether it's on the road or anywhere else. And um, there is a sense of connection when you're looking on a map and looking at how much you have left to do and that you really do exist and you're right there and, and in the next half hour you're going to be there. I think it really is, a, you know, it makes it, it makes, it takes the imagination away and gives you more of a sense of reality. And I so, think that's important. So one quick tip for uh, passengers out there is if uh, you have one of those uh, seat-back videos and they have a map option, turn it on. It, uh -huh. it can't hurt. It might actually help. Definitely. Yeah. Or, or take, a, you know, take the map that's in the, the back of the magazine. A lot of the airlines have those magazines and you know, look at it. And I think, Tom, you, you had a suggestion where you sort of separate the trip by hours in, in, on the route. Yeah, you could even take the... Uh the magazine and go to the back of the magazine and uh, draw a line from your point of departure to your destination. And um, then when the pilot announces the time en route, if it's, say, three hours, divide it up into three pieces, one, one part equaling one hour, and then maybe subdivide it into 15-minute segments. Then do the math. Put the takeoff time on the map, write it on the map where you took off from, and then add an hour that's your first tick mark, and then if you want to do sub-tick marks for each 15 minutes, fine. But the idea is that after you have drawn on the map where you expect to be at each time, then you can look at your watch and say, okay, that's where I'm at. And mm -hmm. even though you have the electronic map, going through that process uh, manually can give you a feeling that uh, you've put yourself back in control and you can split the flight up into parts rather than have to deal psychologically with all of it at once. Right. It's kind of like if you go to McDonald's and, and take one bite of burger and chew it up, you can swallow it, but you wouldn't try to swallow the Big Mac whole. Yeah. And, and now that you mentioned the, the, the bit about the magazines and the maps, no matter how bad things are getting economically for the airlines, they take away food, they take away peanuts. They're not taking away the in-flight magazines, mm -hmm. since yeah. those are uh, money makers for the airline. So uh, pretty much every... Uh, aircraft will have more than enough of those magazines for people to look through. So that's, a, that's one quick tip. Now that we're on this uh, roll, are there two or three other quick tips that you can give to passengers if they feel stressed out, if they don't have time to go get treatment, if they need to deal with the problem right now? What are some other things they can do? Okay, first of all, as 
suggest that they don't rush to the airport and then throw themselves on board to try to keep the fact that they're flying out of mind. It's much better to take a lot of time, make sure that you're not going to be late so you don't have that piece of anxiety to start with. The second thing is you can bring back in the security blanket of control. Uh, meet the captain. A lot of people don't know that even after 9-11 you can still meet the captain because on the ground we're not worried about hijacking. The cockpit is accessible. The way to approach it is uh, see if the uh, person at the, the gate, the person who's in charge at the boarding area, will let you on board the plane ahead of the other passengers, or, or at least at the beginning of the boarding process. gives you time, once you get on board, to ask a flight attendant, would you go up to the cockpit and ask the captain if I can come up and visit? And if, um, if you can do that, the captain, uh, by making that even two, three, four, five-minute relationship with the captain, establishing that for you gives you uh, a chance to reestablish a sense of control because now you have control by proxy. So that's the first security blanket you get back. The second thing is the captain probably can reassure you uh, that the flight's going to be okay. And you get a kind of a gut-level feeling that this person is competent. And one of the things that I've heard time and again, the, the coup de grace, is when the captain takes out pictures and says, look, here's a picture of my family, so you can be sure that I'm not going to do anything to put the plane in danger. So when people realize that the captain is just like they are, they have a family they want to get back to, they care about them, that seems to make the most difference of any single thing that we can offer. Well, thanks for sharing that. I would never have uh, thought that as an option for uh, passengers. I certainly have never recommended that before, but I certainly will in the future. And Lisa, what are some other uh, things that people can do just right now, right here, right now, if they're listening to this on the airplane? Well, I would, you know, I would say, um, you know, what Tom was saying about uh, rushing to the airport and just plopping yourself on a plane and trying to shut everything out or shut all anxiety out. Um, I think the opposite is true. When, you know, you're aware, you can do something when you're aware of what's going on. And so often people want to, I'm not going to think about it, they stop what they're thinking and say, oh, putting it out of my mind. Well, it does go somewhere. It's not just disappearing. So what I tell people is just the fact that you're aware of being afraid to fly is a beginning. You know, on the plane, you know, that's another thing. On the plane, I think the best tip is before you get on Meet the Captain, but be be aware. It's okay to be aware that you're anxious. It doesn't mean that something bad is going to happen. Um, if something feels unsafe to you, it's just a feeling. It doesn't mean it is unsafe. I mean, that's pretty much the case with fear of flying. People feel something is unsafe, that something's going to happen to them. It's just a feeling. You know, being aware is, is the beginning. And, um, you know, for me, awareness is, is, is everything. Without awareness, you can't work on anything. So I think it's okay to, you know, to ha have those emotions come up. It doesn't mean that it's, something's not going to work. Um, so I think, you know, on the plane, yeah, it's a little different because you, haven't, you don't know what to do with it. After you've, you know, done a program or after you've met the captain or know what to do with it, I think it, you know, it can change. But um, I think that the biggest tip, again, going back to what Tom was saying, is meeting the captain. In fact, I still do it whenever I fly. I don't feel like I have to, but there's something about it that is, is, just, is just soothing and everything is okay. Todd, there's one other thing I'd like to throw in here. Uh, we talked a bit about the strengthening exercise and how <clears throat> it's a bit complex and needs to be learned, and we use video for teaching it. But there's also an exercise that is very easy to learn. The person can learn it in just a couple of minutes. And if anybody's interested in learning it, just if they'll send me an email, I'll send them a write-up on it. Uh, if they just want to email me, tom at fearofflying.com, I'll send it out to them. And fearofflying.com is one word. There are no spaces or anything. Right. Now, speaking of, uh, you know, your website, fearflying.com, there's a lot of websites out there. There's a lot of material out there. You go to Google, you type in fear flying, a lot of things come up. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say one's the best in, for a particular person because uh, I'm not in a position to judge uh, things that are dealing with psychological uh, uh, treatments. But in general, if a person is out there trying to figure out what's best for him or her, what are some things they should look for? If they go to a website or hear someone talk about, hey, I offer this course or I offer this treatment, what are some red flags they should look for? Well, I think the 
question comes down to what's their psychology. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if they don't have trouble with elevators, bridges, tunnels, panic attack, they have a very mild problem with flying, anything they'll find on the web is going to help, and it'll be enough. Just learning a few relaxation exercises and learning how flying works is enough. But if a person does have trouble with uh, bridges, tunnels, elevators, panic attacks, then it's going to take something more than just uh, knowledge and relaxation. That's <clears throat> that's where our program comes in because what we've done is we want to provide the kind of help for people who think there's nothing that will help. Now, obviously, uh, the two of you have professional training uh, degrees and and what have you, but uh, even if you have, if someone has a degree, it's not good enough. Is there anything that you can give the average person to be able to tell a, uh, someone who has real treatment offer versus someone who's just trying to make a quick buck? Well, I I don't know that people are really trying to make a a, 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 a quick buck. You know, I think Todd pilots look at it the way they look at it and think other people do too. They think if you know how safe flying is, you'll be fine. And that's true for people who don't have anxiety issues. But for people who do have anxiety issues, it, it's that's not going to be enough. Right. And so that's why I don't think it has so much to do with the person offering a program as it does looking at yourself and seeing do you have anxiety issues or not. Right. If you don't have anxiety issues, you can read a book about how flying works. You can get some of the free help on the Internet. We offer free help, too. Um, but if a person is going to have trouble with anxiety, panic attacks, elevators, bridges, tunnels, that kind of thing, none of the courses that I'm aware of that are available other than ours is going to help. Um, there's another program that's... Um, there's a couple of other things that... Neurolinguistic programming, um, people who practice that can sometimes be a little bit more effective. Uh, I did a year of study of that, and, and I didn't find anything out of the box in the NLP training that was that effective with fear of flying. We tried that. Um, but some people get a little bit of help from it. Um, another program that is out there is virtual reality. Uh, the, it isn't really effective. Um, their research showed that going through this $1,200 program is is equal to sitting on an airplane that's parked and thinking about flying. That's right. not very effective. Yeah. I think that also what you're saying, uh, what Tom is saying about the virtual reality, it, there are programs out there. They they sound great, and we I have had people who call and say have have said that they have done them, and they're not really they're spending a lot of money and not getting any results. And you know, in thinking about it again, like Tom was saying you know you're not really on a plane. What are you really preparing for? You know, all you're doing is kind of getting sensations thrown at you. But again, you, in the back of your mind, emotionally, you know, I'm on the ground and I'm looking at this, you know, this virtual reality. It's a different, you know, w- what is it really helping you with? So uh, a couple of things here. Um, again, I, I'm no professional in, in, in psychology. I know the phrase panic attacks. I hear the phrase all the time. What exactly is a panic attack? And also, when you explain that, could you give us a short synopsis? You have anxiety problems if, you know, sort of warning signs that you have serious anxiety issues and should look into it. So what's a panic attack? Panic attack comes when there's multiple shots of stress hormones. See, one shot of adrenaline, as I was explaining, would take you on a scale of 0 to 10, figuring that 10 is a panic attack. Um, It'll take you to 0 to 2. So it takes five shots of stress hormones to cause a panic attack. So basically what that means is five thoughts. Now, if a person thinks thought one, thought two, thought three, thought four, thought five, they can build up to high anxiety or panic over a period of a minute or two. But there's a fascinating thing in in neurology called the Hebb's axiom, and that is neurons which fire together wire together. So after you think thought one, thought two, thought three, thought four, thought five, repeatedly, it becomes a unit, and it goes one, three, five. So that when you fire any one of those thoughts, all five thoughts fire. Instead of getting one shot of stress hormones, you get five, and you go instantly to panic. Many people who have panic attacks are not aware of any 
cognitive activity at all in the panic attack. Mm-hmm. What we do in our program is we want to take those, let's say, five things, split them apart, put a spacer between each one so that one doesn't lead to the next, and so that each one not only doesn't lead to the next, but leads to a soothing memory. And that has been able to stop panic attacks 100% with the people we've worked with. And for the people you work with who have the severe anxiety issues, uh, what are the signs that I have a severe anxiety issue? Uh, Well, if a person has trouble with elevators, uh, that's obviously an anxiety issue. If you have panic attacks, uh, you, you have more difficulty with anxiety than the average person would. So any kind of panic attack through any context, if you have that issue, uh, then you probably have a severe anxiety issue. I don't know if I'd call it severe. Um, I, I think the question is, is how much does it impair the things you want to do? Right. right. Yeah, there's so many different levels of um, fall, that fall under anxiety disorders. Um, you'd have to really look at criteria if you wanted to properly you know, diagnose it or use the correct word. But, yeah, I think it is all about how much in your life it is, you know, how much of your life it's impairing. Todd, I think we could we could maybe talk about it uh, in this way. Since that issue of control is one of the ways we deal with uncertainty and anxiety, if we're really good at control, we can make ourselves feel safe. But we don't have enough control for certain things, so we end up perhaps making our world a little smaller and we feel better. And then we make it a little smaller and a little smaller. Do you remember mm-hmm. Howard Hughes? Here's a guy who was running this huge corporation, and he wanted to control everything. And when he found he couldn't, he started shrinking his world and finally ended up locking himself into a room Mm -hmm. and not having any contact with anybody to try to find, to make his world small enough that he could control it and stop the anxiety. And with a severe anxiety problem, that sometimes happens. People do uh, get involved with what's diagnosed as agoraphobia. Mm -hmm. They just want to stay sometimes not just in their house, but even in just one room. We, we have had people who are recovering agoraphobics that, you know, little by little have made, you know, made their world a little bigger, trying to leave, leave the house, then go to the store and so on. And one of the last things that they tackle if they continue with their treatment will be getting on a plane. And it's always nice to hear that, you know, that that's, that's the final thing they're going to tackle because it's the most out-of-control place they can ever think of putting themselves. So, it, in summary, a very brief summary, it seems as though fear of flying might be about flying, but it could be about a whole lot of other things. And if you yeah. get fixated on the flying part, you might be missing out on what's really causing you the problem. Good, it, it good does way to add put up, it, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things that we find is that a lot of people start having trouble when they start making their world bigger, when they take on uh, a new job, when they... Um, get married, and particularly when they have kids. Um, when they have kids, it's interesting that stress hormones are released in the brain and into the body that cause the expectant mother to become obsessed with safety. It's also interesting. It also affects the men. Wow, that, that could be another show altogether right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, let me, uh, we're, we're right about at the one hour mark, and I wanted to uh, uh, wrap this up, and uh, if if you had one parting message for the folks out there, especially folks who are thinking, well, gee, should I do something about my fear of flying, what would that be? I think the most important thing that we need to get across is that uh, no matter what you've tried, we can give you the tools you need to be able to fly successfully and comfortably. Uh, so many people try things which uh, aren't adequate, such as hypnosis, such as some of the other programs, such as cognitive therapy, such as other kinds of therapy, and, and don't get good results. Some people try medication, of course, they don't get good results. Um, so the main thing is, I believe, is that, yes, we, we, we can help people. And one last uh, comment uh, from you all. You say you can help people. Where should they go for help? Where, where should they go on the web, and what number should they call? So the website is uh, fearofflying.com, 
and you know they can browse around you know as Tom mentioned there's a lot of resources even besides the programs we offer um, they're free resources and just you know hang around and browse through uh, sometimes we find people do that a couple of weeks even maybe a year before they they do something about it um, or they can call the 800 number um, that's right on the site which is 1-800-332-7359 and for Tom if they want to do, you know, directly speak with him or do the counseling session with him, same number, but it's 877-332-7359. You know, there's one other thing that you do that I almost forgot to mention. You have a weekly uh, call-in option where anyone, whether or not they're officially with your programs or not, can call in and have a discussion about fear of flying? Yes, every Wednesday at 9 o'clock Eastern, uh, we have a ordinary kind of chat from nine until eleven where you can type in or just sit and watch uh... and at eleven o'clock uh... i'm sorry at ten o'clock uh, i split off and um, and have a free uh... counseling session by phone with people uh... lisa then takes over the typed in chat and then i work with people for an hour with uh... free counseling and where do i go to find information about how to log into that uh, conference if if someone just will email Tom at fearflying.com. I'll send them the information. Very good. Well, I think that uh, just about covers it for this time around, and I'd like to thank you both for uh, being with us here today at airsafe.com, and I learned a few things about fear flying. So I do hope that uh, we get a chance to talk in the future as well. Great. Thank you, Todd. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Conversation at airsafe.com. For more information about the fear of flying, including links to the SOAR Fear of Flying program, please visit fear.airsafe.org. That's fear.airsafe.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.